1938, John W. Campbell Jr. stunned the literary world with his science fiction thriller, Who Goes There? The story of an ancient extraterrestrial being that terrorized an American scientific expedition at the South Pole. In 1952, Howard Hawks brought Who Goes There? to the screen as the film classic, The Thing from Another World, a chilling marriage of old horror and new science fiction. And now, in 1982, the producers responsible for The Graduate and The Getaway, together with John Carpenter, the innovative young director of Halloween, The Fog, and Escape from New York, bring you The Thing, a refashioning of the classic tale. Anytime, anywhere, anyone. Coming from Universal this summer. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I'm Troy Harkin. And this is our first look at The Thing, the 1982 John Carpenter film. We may touch on other things, so to speak. Uh, this is part one of a two-part episode. We're recording it on Tuesday, April 12, 2023. And part one is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, May 27th. And part two on June 10th. And David, I just want to say we should invite our listeners to, uh, as part of a drinking game, whenever we say the thing other than the title of the show, then they should have a drink. So, like, the thing about that is yada yada. That's oh when you God. have a drink. It's going to happen. You do with your things, as George Carlin would yeah. say. Um, so we have two special guests, Carolyn Clink and Sandra Kasturi. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Push on the button. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Thanks, Troy. We're recording the session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, I've known Carolyn for over six decades and Sandra for close to four decades. And Troy has known Carolyn and Sandra for decades as well. Let's introduce our guests. Let's do that. All right, then. Carolyn Klink is a poet living in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. She won the Aurora Award for Best Poem Song in 2022 for Cat People Cafe, and in 2011, for the ABCs of the End of the World. Her genre poetry publications include Weird Tales, Analog, Imaginarium 2012, The Best Canadian Speculative Writing, Polar Starlight, Polar Borealis, On Spec, Tesseracts, Frost Zone, Zine, Eye to the Telescope, Tales of the Unanticipated Room, and all five volumes of Northern Frights. Sandra Kasturi is an award-winning poet, writer, and editor with work appearing in many places, including On Spec, several Tesseracts, anthologies, and 80, Memories and Reflections on Ursula K. Le Guin. Her two poetry collections are The Animal Bridegroom, with an introduction by Neil Gaiman, and Come Late to the Love of Birds, both from Tightrope Books. Sandra recently won second prize in the New Quarterly's Nick Blatchford Occasional Verse Contest. She is also the winner of the Sunburst Award for her story, The Beautiful Gears of Dying, and ARC Magazine's Poem of the Year Award for Old Men Smoking. Welcome, Carolyn and Sandra. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Respond. Yeah. Respond. I'm yeah. happy to be here. Before we get into our The Thing episode, Troy and I would like to know about our guests' early genre loves and all-time faves. This is something we like to ask our guests. We asked these of Sandra when she first appeared as a guest. Now it is Carolyn's turn. Carolyn, we want to know how you were first introduced to the speculative genre, whether it be the written word or its cinematic universe. Two Old First Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. But here I insert... An excerpt from a review on The Thing, which I like to do during the podcast. 
And Roger Ebert's one of our favorite people, but it turns out he was not really a fan of the thing. And here's a little quote that he has said. Because this material has been done before and better, especially in the original of the thing and in Alien, there's no need to see this version unless you are interested in what the thing might look like while starting from anonymous greasy organs, extruding giant crab legs, and transmuting itself into a dog. Amazingly, I'll bet that thousands, if not millions, of moviegoers are interested in seeing just that. Wrong. Yeah, that's a bit of a downer. And I think we will discuss the reception of the movie during the podcast. Now, here's a terrible segue, Carolyn. Can you tell us what your first speculative genre memory was? Oh, so I was going through your this question, thinking it over. I'm going to say I'm going to go with Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. The TV series that ran from 1964 to 1968. Now, it's possible before that I saw some Twilight Zones or some Outer Limits or whatever. But the show that really captured me and I had to watch every week was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Thanks, Carolyn. And we would like to get into your all-time genre favorites. Um, Here are some rapid-fire questions about your favorite genre things. We're just looking for titles, but if you feel the urge, you can expand a bit. We do wish to get to talking about the things soon. For this season, we reduced the number of all-time faves to six categories. And we're considering going to five faves in season five. Okay, that was bad. Take it away, Troy. (laughs) And we're saying how it kind of sounds like a a Tarantino film, the fave five. So here's the fave five. You ready? Are you ready? Yes. Yes, you're ready. Okay. What is your favorite genre film? Surprisingly, the reason that I am here tonight is my favorite genre movie is John Carpenter's The Thing. Okay, what about your favorite genre television show? Uh, Star Trek, the original series. Fair enough. Uh, The answer to this next question does not have to come from your favorite uh, genre TV show, Um, but can you tell us what is your favorite all-time genre TV episode? Well, I'm going to stick with Star Trek, the original series, and go with Balance of Terror as being my favorite episode. Very nice. How about your... Oh, yes, you may. Yes, step in. Which one is uh, Balance of Terror? It's the one where um, uh, these outposts are being destroyed, and then it turns out it's the Romulans, and they've never seen them before. Oh, right. And then they look like the Vulcans, and everyone is like, They look like the Vulcans, and then there's some prejudice going on. I remember. And uh, Mark Leonard doing a beautiful job as the Romulan commander. It's really, I love that episode. Hmm. Carolyn, what about your favorite genre novel? You know, I was trying to, because you, you, you kind of skip past my favorite novelist, which obviously has to be my husband. Right. I was going to say, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> I know, but it was like, then I'm supposed to pick a book and I'm well, like. Well, we will, we do get into genre author. I'm like, I don't know, you know, I, I just literally left that blank on the sheet because I, I, I just don't know. Too many? No, there's yeah. there've been so many. So does it get any easier looking at shorter work? It does only because you said there should be, you know, a, a little story to go with it. So I actually picked Barry B. Longyear's Enemy Mine. Oh, this is classic. 1980. And uh, he got nominated for the Hugo Award in 1980, which was given in Boston. And this was uh, my husband. It was not yet my husband and I's first world science fiction convention. And we decided we would read all the short fiction that was, you know, on the final ballot. And we would pick, right? So I read all of the, the short fiction. And literally my favorite story was Enemy Mind by Barry B. Longyear. And he ended up winning the Hugo. And it was like, yay! So my taste doesn't suck, you know. <laughs> and so you don't want to revisit uh, your favorite genre author? You can do whatever you need to do, my friend. 
No, my favorite genre author is Robert J. Sawyer. Well, there we go. There you go. But what book I'm like. Yeah. There's so many. Well, we're just going to enter Dune for you like everyone else. I'm just. Uh-huh. Um, I did like Dune, but I don't think it was my favorite. I had a fondness when I was a teenager. <clears throat> oh, I'm not going to remember the title of it now. But, you know, I find that as I age, my my love changes. Mm-hmm, definitely. Oh, yeah. Very true. Very Absolutely. True. Absolutely. I have I have a, I really loved a, I read I only read the, for example, like the first six Dune books like that. Because I think after that, uh, Brian Herbert took over. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Anyway, but the first six, like I really loved those. Um, and I know there are people who didn't like the sec- the second trilogy um, as much, but I did like it. But I will say that some of it doesn't age that well. Um, so, like, that's, you know, as so often happens with stuff written, um, there's a there's just some things that kind of make me roll my eyes a little bit. But you know what? Still epic, still amazing. So overlook some of those little things. Um, so one thing is we no longer ask what your best fish is, which was my pun on MTV's best kiss. And we had a lot of fun with that one over the last year or two, but we're just keeping it to six things. So it is no longer on the menu. Um, on so, things, so you're not, uh, you're not going to ask me what the best episode of the TV series fish was. Well, that could be a thing. Yeah. I remember. Was that Abe Vigoda? No, no, I do not have one. Oh, okay. Abe Vigoda. Oh, yeah. Fish. Fish. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. was he's that was spun off from Barney Miller? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was? Yes. Wow. But I just realized I believe it or not, I watched for the pretty much the first time. I'd seen it before years ago, but um, the first episode of Firefly the other day, and I realized that there was a character from uh, Barney Miller on Firefly. Oh, yeah. Yes. Book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was very good in it, too. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, on to the thing. Um, Troy Harkin will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. From an early age, John Carpenter was fascinated with the original 1951 version of The Thing, directed by Christian Nyby, produced by Howard Hawks and starring James Arnaz as The Thing. That film was based on the novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. In 1981, Carpenter had directed only three major feature films, Halloween, The Fog, and Escape from New York. After the success of Alien... Universal Films was hoping Carpenter could recreate something like Alien. Carpenter was eager to do so and hoped he and screenwriter Bill Lancaster might capture more of the flavor of the original short story. Carpenter was even hoping to call the film Who Goes There after the original work. According to The Thing Wiki, the film's title refers to its primary antagonist, a parasitic extraterrestrial life form that assimilates other organisms and in turn imitates them. It infiltrates an Antarctic research station, taking the appearance of the researchers that it kills, and paranoia occurs within the group. The story, in elevator pitch terms, was basically Alien meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers meets Ten Little Indians by Agatha Christie. The script was written by Burt Lancaster's son, Bill. He only wrote four screenplays in his life, The Bad News Bears, The Bad News Bears Go to Japan, The Thing, and an early draft of Firestarter, which Carpenter had been slated to direct. Bill Lancaster died of a heart attack at the age of 49 in 1997. The film starred former Disney teen star Kurt Russell as McCready, as well as a mixed ensemble of veteran actors and first-timers. Rob Bottin created the legendary practical effects. Unlike most horror and sci-fi films, 
It was decided that the titular thing needed to be seen clearly on screen and for long periods, as the power of the monster was the way it assimilates, changing after each victim that it absorbs. To make that clear, the horror had to be viewed. And that is precisely what unnerved so many critics. The body horror was graphic and not just restricted to humans. The thing took the seldom breached rule of showing animals in pain. Ennio Morricone, one of the cinema's most renowned composers, provided the score. This was one of the few times Carpenter did not score his own film. Shot on location in Stewart, British Columbia and north of Juneau, Alaska, the main camp was built in the summer of 1981 and then covered in snow as the winter moved in. As this is an entirely pre-CGI film, the camp was actually blown up at the end of the shoot. The thing opened on June 25, 1982, the same day as Blade Runner. The thing's opening weekend was only the eighth biggest grossing film for that weekend. Here's a list of the genre films that outperformed The Thing at the box office in 1982. Ghost Story, Creepshow, Blade Runner, Tron, Time Bandits, Conan the Barbarian, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, Poltergeist, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and E.T. Quite a list, eh? Made for $15 million, the thing made $19.6 million in North America. Definitely not the blockbuster Universal was hoping for. If filmgoers were ambivalent about seeing the thing, film critics actively hated it. Here are just a few of the -the over-the-top broadsides launched at Carpenter's film. Quote, a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie, aspiring to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s. That's from Vincent Canby of the New York Times. The Thing is a film with the worst intentions. It wants only to bludgeon you into, into submission. Kenneth Turin. The structure of the piece reminds me unpleasantly of porno films. Variety. The film is more disgusting than frightening, and most of it's just boring. David Denby. Though Gene Siskel found the film intriguing, Roger Ebert called it, quote, the barf bag movie of July and, quote, the most nauseating thing I've ever seen on a movie screen. Carpenter has said that the critics wanted to take him down after his early success with Halloween. Fortunately, thanks in large part to the nascent home video market of the time, the thing began to experience an almost immediate critical reevaluation. Many of the next generation of filmmakers, such as Guillermo del Toro, Edgar Wright, J.J. Abrams, and Quentin Tarantino, have cited the influence of the thing. By the late 1990s, articles began to appear with titles like In Defense of John Carpenter's The Thing. Now, The Thing is widely regarded as one of the best horror sci-fi films ever made, with particular accolades going to Rob Bottin's practical effects. The film is now included in the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die book. That same book calls The Thing one of the most influential horror movies of the 1980s, much imitated but rarely bettered, forever raising the bar on cinematic horror. Apparently, just as The Thing changes, so can public opinion, just not as fast. Thanks a lot, Troy. Um, one of the things we do um, with our shows is we ask the guests about what their first experience was with the subject. In, in case um, in point with the the um, John Carpenter, the Thing film, Carolyn Sandra, can you do you have a story or any memory of when you first actually saw that film? I was I was trying to think actually, and Carolyn, you you're probably just going to have to take over for you because I cannot for the life of me remember when I saw it. Um, what was the year it's out again? 82? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I would have seen that in the theater um, because uh, I mean, I quite likely would have been, I was living at home. I quite likely would have been forbidden from doing so. Um, I feel like I saw it in my twenties, um, maybe on video. I honestly don't know, um, but I've watched it 
a lot, uh, but it had been quite some time before I just watched it again on this, just before, you know, we were going to do the show, but I'll talk about that later, but I have no memory. Carolyn, I'm hoping, bring it on home. Being an old lady, uh, I watched it in the theater uh, with my husband, who was two years before we were married. Um, so it was a long time ago. But I remember being in the theater. And generally speaking, like Alien, etc. you know, when I watch a horror movie, my hands are generally over my eyes, you know, and I'm peeking through. You know, and the thing that the thing about the thing. There we go. Have a drink. Yes. Have a drink. When I um, when they got to the very first transformation in the dog kennel. I was mesmerized, like like on the edge of my seat with my eyes wide open, just watching this, the practical effects of turning this dog into this ginormous creature and i was just stunned in essence so so the whole film my eyes are my i never covered them because it was just so amazing to see what they what they managed to do on on not a big budget but to make everything just look so real and so uh you know uh Visceral, so icky, so, to say. so icky, so icky, and yet I, I just could not look away. I, I just was mesmerized. So Troy, do you remember your first uh, memory? Well, you of know what? I, I, I sort of feel like Sandra. It's one of those weird movies that feels like it's always been there. Uh, I guess yes, that's it exactly. Yeah, like I don't. I know I didn't see it in the theater because in '82. I had not made, believe it or not, the full jump to like full fledged horror. If I had the sense that it was, I had seen ET, I'd seen many of the things that were on that list from 82, but, uh, it looked too much for me at the time. Um, so I didn't see it in, in the theater. And by the way, I love that poster design for the thing because again, you don't oh, yeah. know what it is and it just, it's, it's incredibly, you know, in, ter- in terms of visual arts, it's incredibly graphic. It's, it's it's wonderful how it just stands out, and you know what it is as soon as you see that that poster. Um, so uh, my first time would have been either renting it on VHS, or I think more likely seeing it on First Choice or Super Channel or something like that when it would have first aired. Um, and my first impression is still sort of the same. If I haven't seen the film for the for a while. It it was the whole bit about like who is this prick who's chasing a dog, and so that that was like and I'm always drawn into like what what is the story with the dog, and and you think okay no the dog's okay the dog's okay you see the dog, and who I believe's name was Jed or something like that, um, and um, but then then you know not very much longer you do get that graphic scene with the dogs and you're like oh no the, all my worries about dogs it's coming true you know um and i i almost had that sense of like once the dogs were done it was like okay i don't really care now like like kill the humans i don't care because you know we lost the dogs at least they're out of the picture now um it it still reminds me of like it feels like the film Cronenberg should have made, and I love Carpenter, but it just feels because it's so graphic and it's body horror. It it feels like um, to me like it wants to be a Carpenter, not a Carpenter film, a Cronenberg film. That's so uh, funny. I had exactly the same thought because, especially on this this rewatch, um, when all the really oogie stuff starts happening, I thought immediately like, oh, this is so Cronenbergian. It's so it's so naked lunch. It's so existence. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a all the icky intestine you know, kind of a stuff that you see in a Cronenberg movie. So I had exactly the same reaction, albeit much later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, by the time I was all in on Cronenberg, I was, that's when I was really ready for the thing. Um, so probably around the, you know, around that time. And maybe the thing might've been the film where I went, Oh, I guess I can ha- handle body horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I like the, um, with the DVD I got, there was this, these, um, one of the things had Kurt Russell and John Carpenter commenting 
about um, that. And the thing about that, I'm sorry, <laughs> was um, them commenting just about, you know, Wilfred Brimley there taking the guts out of this thing and doing all of this stuff and just basically enjoying the hell out of that moment that he had on screen. I just learned something minutes before we went to air. Um, and I, and I'm really probably being a doofus by thinking that among the three of you, one of you won't know this, but you know, it's talked about how it's an all male cast. Um, but supposedly there, there is a paid female, uh, actor on the film. And do you folks know who that is? Oh, I see Carolyn nodding. You want to give us the lowdown on that, Carolyn? Uh, honestly, I read it and I then went, oh, yeah, okay. She's like the voice of the computer. He's playing chess or whatever the heck he's doing. Right, Adrian Barbeau, I, I, yeah. The name is, oh, yes, Adrian Barbeau. Is it? I see. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, I didn't know it until, again, I just sort of went to grab something from uh, the wiki page and, and I saw that. Actually, I went to print up the cast list because I wanted to have that in front of me. Um. But David, do you did you have uh, sort of a memory, or when did you first see it? Well, I didn't, bl- yeah, yeah I don't think I saw it. I, I, I just I just can't recall if I saw it in the theater or not. That it might have just been. I don't know if it would have been on on um, Saturday night at the movies or something because it might have been too strongly, you know, with the subject matter and everything else. It might have just been when it was eventually on TV or something like that. Now, I know you've always been a, a big fan of the original. So is that one of the contributing factors to you, like watching um, the remake? Oh, definitely. Um, in fact, the the original movie, The Thing from Another World from 51, and we may talk a bit about that later, even though we're really concentrating on the 82 film, was my favorite you know, science fiction film for about 20 years, um, just ahead of things like... Um, um, Invasion of the Body Snatcher, the Kevin McCarthy one, um, and a few other uh, films like Alien and and so on. It's just really strong film. But the Carpent, but the uh, Carpenter one, the eighty two one, has grown over time. Just as you were saying in your setup, that you know people get more. There's more to it than just how people reacted uh, at yeah. the time. And I'm sure that there must be other examples but you know nothing really springs to mind of a film that is now uh seen as being so influential that was so roasted and the thing is it wasn't just critics it was like it sounded like you know uh carolyn and robert were like two of the few people that actually saw this in the theater um so it was it was not you know critically loved or beloved by the public originally um, you know, I'm, I'm sure like most things it did have a, a hardcore small audience, but, um, yeah. Can you guys think of any other films that have gone on to be, to be so influential, but also so sort of like ignored on original release? Yeah. Carolyn? I will say, um, I despised the movie Tron. Mm. I saw it in 1982, as you say, same year, I think it was. And I despised it. And yet somehow it went from being this kind of hokey story to being like a god of movies. And huh. I'm like, really? I don't know that, yeah, I don't know that Tron is really a god of movies, but I remember because they had the sequel, Tron 2 Electric Boogaloo or whatever. I can't remember what it was named. Um, but uh, I and, and uh, my husband and I rewatched Tron because, again, we hadn't seen it since the 80s. And I was actually surprised that some of the effects and other things actually held up pretty well. Um, right. I, I was actually quite surprised because other films of that era with bigger budgets and better effects have not fared as well. So, um, but we're kind of veering off the topic of our thing. But um, I mean, I can't remember. Was Alien a critical success when it first came out? Did it? I want to say, yeah, I guess it was because that's why, what did I say? Universal wanted to sort of replicate oh, the formula. Oh, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and actually, maybe this is a, oh, sorry, David, did you have something there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2001, when we did our podcast on it, I think um, Rob, and I'm not sure if it was Mark Asquith, were both. Right. Guests. 
And that one was not taken, was not considered as great a film as it was when it had first come. It wasn't quite as critically received. And in fact, some people walked out of it. That's right. It was, it was lambasted on its original screening, I believe Washington or New York, one of the two. Um, and then they cut out minutes, like many minutes from, from, uh, the film. Um, and, but, and the wise thing was with that, that was back in the days when, um, films would roadshow where they would travel from city to city. There wouldn't be a mass opening. Um, and it allowed 2001 to, to garner word of mouth. Um, and unfortunately with, uh, um, the thing with its, its sort of North American opening, the word of mouth was not good. <laughs> it, was, it did not help in any way. Um, it just was sort of, it was waiting for the zeitgeist to change, I think. Oh, which is important to mention, I guess, because as well, you know, that, um, this is a film, uh, that came out, uh, during both, uh, a recession. So people were looking for something that was more of not gritty realism with a downer ending, but either uh, an upbeat ending like E.T. or something that was more escapism, or even, I guess, with, with Star Trek too, you have that sense of nostalgia that you're watching characters that you're familiar with. Um, I thought it would have hit that button of, uh, you know, 80s Cold War commie paranoia, though, like, you know, just like in the 50s. You had that, uh, the, the red peril. Um, you know, I would have thought that again, like this would have come in that time. So right. Why didn't it hit the right note? Or maybe people just didn't want to go through that again. And yeah. Like, and even oh, me ET. You're right. And even like with Road Warrior, you know, it's pretty gritty, but I suppose it has the escapism of not being in the here and now. It's, it's in the whatever the, what's the phrase? The near, the near future. Uh, post-apocalypse um but also it has a what i would call a happy ending which yeah. one? Oh, oh, road, road warrior yeah because he you know he gets to win sort of and it it's not like everybody win. died no, no. It, doesn't, it doesn't have the nihilism of the thing and the other thing that we, there we go, have a drink. The other thing that, um, you can lose sight of watching this, um, what are we at? 40 years later now, um, is that this was at the height of, uh, the AIDS scare of the hysteria. And supposedly these scenes of, of blood shooting out of people was really topically frightening. You know, it's like not just, yes, yeah, blood flow. It's like, no, I'm going to die if I get that blood on me, you know, and, and, uh, well, in the case of the thing, that's probably true. Yeah. You yeah. well, that's right. Um, and we have a note, uh, I think David and I picked this up from the, uh, commentary, but Carpenter said the scene that most freaked people out was the hypodermic, uh, scene where people are getting, you know, the needle in the arm. You know, it wasn't like the dog exploding or, or the chests uh, biting people. Um, it was just people getting needles and again, the blood. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was the same guy. There was some hand, someone working on this set that said, oh, yeah, go ahead and shoot the, the needle in my arm. And he was the one that for uh, any needle going in arm, it was this one person now if you look at it because it sort of jumps now now that i was thinking about it when i watched it again it's clearly someone else's arm because the guy's standing there and the arm and it doesn't even look like this guy's arm anything close it's like the uh, the fight scenes in the classic trek where you suddenly pan back you've got two people don't look at all like the actual actors fighting that's what I'm going to have to look for that the next time I watch the movie because I mean, I mean, I guess this is how compelling it is, at least for me, that I, I never even noticed that. Just totally didn't notice. There were a couple of things that, um, struck me when I watched it on my recent viewings and I wanted to put, put it out to you. And, um, I know it's, it sounds a little, uh, smart ass, but it's, it's an actual thing. So tell me what you think. Um, I wondered, does the spaceship crash at the beginning of the film? because the things flying it are crappy pilots or because the thing has escaped on their ship and raised hell like the xenomorph did on the Nostromo. Um, Interesting question. Or if you have any other, you know, 
possible suggestions as to why that spaceship crashes. Any ideas? We're all writers here. Feel free. Let her rip. I think, I think I always assumed that that the thing was heading to Earth anyway to do damage, but that something, you know, it, uh, it you know, had these spaceship equivalent of uh, of engine trouble or something, and uh, you know, car trouble in outer space, and and uh, then ended up um, in Antarctica and got frozen in the ice for uh, how long did they say? Because I think the story says a different time than the movie says. Yeah, it's um, around a hundred thousand years. Thousand years. I think the story, original story, was like millions of years. I don't know, but anyway, and then uh, you know, had tried to, but there there really wasn't anything it could do, so it just sort of got stuck, and that was the end of that. So the planetary takeover. I just assumed there was a, a species of these things that just did this and absorbed entire planets and other species. Not that it was something another species was taking somewhere and then it you know got loose and the, the ship crashed i don't know don't know which i like what i found what i found interesting in a way was that the thing knew how to build a spaceship yes that is that's a question you know he's you know he's he, he can assemble the parts he can build the spaceship and i'm like okay so this this thing that we see that's just hideous and horrible etc is actually a pretty smart cookie or at least he thinks that people he's absorbed are smart i don't know how they were but but that he could build a spaceship and nobody even notices until the end of the film (laughs) right i that was a scene i completely forgot about actually and uh when we got to it i was like oh my god right he's building a spaceship because he wants to I guess go to a more populated center and really start to his, his job. I don't know. Well, what yeah. it actually was, it wasn't even a spaceship. It was, remember it was Wilfred Brimley playing the yeah. role. It was a big thing to make oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> yeah. For me, again, like sort of the more I connected it to other works or, thematically other works specifically the whole lovecraftian mythos um i i realized that oh well maybe this is like alien and maybe this thing got on that ship in the same way it's it's part of the whatever the old gods and or a lower form of it and it got on the ship and it it did what it did on Earth as well. So it's some other species that was on the ship, and it took over. Um, that was my idea, anyway. I, I wanted to actually, while I was mentioning Lovecraft, to throw this quote out there because it seems to connect to the thing really well. Um, this quote opens uh, the recent Lovecraft documentary that's available out there. It is the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest fear is fear of the unknown. And uh, we totally get that in spades in the thing. And um, like other Lovecraftian-based films like Color Out of Space and The Mist uh, and Aliens and Reanimator and The Dimage Horror, things never end well. You know, you can't, you can't do a Lovecraftian story and have a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and so, I, I wanted to bring up Lovecraft yep. too because um, I've only read one Lovecraft, and it was at the Mountains of Madness. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a scene in it that's pretty much like the scene where McCready and the Doctor, or whoever, maybe it's Wilfred. Oh, anyway, they go to the Norwegian camp, and it's. In this case, it's these these people, and they they drop into this camp in Antarctica, and it's just like been destroyed, and it's you know right. the, the, you know Lovecraftian people have done this, but you know when I read that, I thought this is from this is the thing, you yeah. know this is John Carpenter's the thing, and I'm thinking well Campbell, you know was not above stealing stuff, yeah. yeah. So he may well have just stolen that out of at the mountains of madness and put it into his story. That's funny because just before we uh, started recording, I went through uh, 
the, the novella a little bit. And I, I found a few passages where I went, oh, that sounds very Lovecraftian. <laughs> like just the wording, <laughs> just the wording of it. I was like, oh, well, okay, influence, you know, I guess influence. <laughs> yeah, I think he was influenced in, in quotation marks there. I think he stole stuff. <laughs> Um, I have another question for consideration that um, I, there's definitely no correct answer for. Um, but it's been noted that when Carpenter did uh, Halloween, that not enough credit is, is ever given to Deborah Hill, who uh, I guess co-produced and, and co-wrote Halloween with him. And in that film, we get, uh, you know, even before Ripley, we get this great, female heroine uh in the story and in the film so what i wanted to know is do you think are there women in this cast if deborah hill and john carpenter are still going out and working together at the time of the film Hmm. interesting question i don't know i mean um it never bothered me that it was just men in this in this cast because it had it has a feel of like uh like one of those like a frontier movie from the old days where of course anybody doing any exploring you know back in the 1700s those would be men um so to throw in a token woman for no reason other than that would seem ridiculous to me yeah Um, so down in antarctica at that time even in the 80s maybe all those those people would be men at that point in time of course you do have uh, a woman in the th- thing prequel, which is supposedly set in the same time. Um, but, uh, I don't know if Deborah Hill was more involved, would there have been women? Maybe, maybe you'd, yeah. maybe you'd have one. Um, and I suppose you could say that, okay, with alien, yes, there's women aboard, but it's the future, right? So yeah. we've been able to take that step, but yes, this- in the future, uh, women will be able to travel in space and, you know, have money and buy homes and things. Right. And as opposed to the thing where it is 1982. So that's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm actually surprised that there are black men there, but yeah, yeah, that was actually, do you know what? This is, this is so funny. Uh, cause I guess it had, it has really been a long time since I, I have, I had seen the thing and I found that I had forgotten every actor in that except right. for Kurt Russell. So yeah. when Wilfred Brimley showed up, I was like, Wilfred Brimley's in this? And then when Keith David showed up, I was like, Keith David. And then Richard Mazer, Richard Mazer, you know, like it kept happening. And I thought, I clearly have no memory, but that was uh, quite fast. And I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised that in fact, it's not just white people. That was nice. Yeah, definitely. And Richard Dysart, who was, what was it, LA Law or one of those law shows? Yes, or? yes, he was, uh, he was the head lawyer at in LA Law for, I think the entire series. And I think, I mean, clearly it feels like they, uh, that's part of the casting. I mean, part of it might've been budget as well, I'm sure, but, um, that people are either sort of, I don't want to say has-beens, but older actors who are character actors or people who are doing their first roles on film. Um, and I think it serves the film really well. You know, because even to to this day, you still you don't really remember a lot of the characters. They seem a little bit interchangeable, but in a good way, because you're not thinking, "Oh, that's Tom Cruise. That's Ben Affleck." You know, yada yada. Uh, most of the people you probably just mentioned, the, those were early roles for them, and it was before the roles that you mentioned, right? Like when what was it? L.A. Law you mentioned? Yeah. Which, yeah. So which, that's uh, when was L.A. Law? Late eighties, I think. Uh, I, like, yeah. Is that the, that's not the same show as Susan Day, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, Harry yeah. Hamlin, uh, Corbin and Benson, Day and Corbin Benson. Yeah. Benson, Bernson, Bernson. I don't know. We'll fix um, that. We could look it up. Uh, <laughs> let's get some of the quotes that I have from the 82 film. Uh, there are two that were specific that when um, Kurt Russell and uh, John Carpenter were doing their talk over the film on the bits on the DVD, they pointed these ones out, which was, of course, that that, that Norris's head growing legs and tries to walk away. And Palmer, uh, the character Palmer said, you got to be fucking kidding, uh, which is just such a great moment. 
And the, the, the greatest line, of course, was Gary on the chair. Like one of the things that, that bothered me most with the whole, that whole scene, which was a great scene about, you know, testing the blood and doing all that stuff is that the moment you test someone, you clear them and get them out of the way in case someone else is tested and then they're going to yeah. start attacking whoever's roped together. Now, after what happens, they do get their act together because the moment one is cleared, then you have a little cutaway and then you suddenly see, no, that person's no longer on the couch anymore, no longer tied up. They're part of the group that's okay. And then you see that, and then you eventually left with Gary as the last person. And when he's cleared, uh, oh, I wanted you to read this, Troy, because I think you can do the voice well on this. Oh, no, sure. Okay, let me. Uh, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. There we go. Actually, one of the things that um, I really love about the thing is that there isn't a lot of time spent with. Don't be ridiculous. I don't believe you. How is That's that right. possible? They they go straight from what the fuck to oh shit, we got to do something. Like it really, there isn't any like, well, that's completely ridiculous, and I don't believe you, and I'm not gonna. Be, 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 be. It's yeah. they, they move right along, and 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 I love that they they fuck things up, and then they gotta hustle and find other solutions. And I like even that their physical fights with each other are are just like flailing and fast and and it's it's it doesn't feel like a choreographed action it just feels like how people would actually react in that situation mm. which i thought was nicely done definitely like it just the whole feel of the film is i'm watching this happen i'm it yeah. almost feels like a found film a found footage film in that way oh yeah you know yeah, it's like awesome. i am watching something horrible happen i don't know why in I don't real need time to, I don't, yeah, I don't need to know why because I'm just watching it happen. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one like, of the great like in series 24, you know, it's like there, it's just like someone is videotaping this. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening before our eyes. You're right. Yeah. But also, that's why, in essence, they went, uh, they talk about it in the Wikipedia or something. They went with mostly unknown actors, is that yes. you, you know, you tend to feel that they're more like real people. Yeah. In this situation, as yeah. opposed to, you know, oh, well, it's Kurt Russell. He's going to get out of this. But those guys, I don't know. Their days are numbered. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I wish I had time to pull it up. But um, the the little uh, character descriptions in the script were so brief. It's hilarious, too. It's just like things like he likes the paycheck. You know, like that's the, that's it. You know, he'd rather not be here. Like that type of thing. Like that's all you get. And I, and you know, I've heard other people say too that in any other film with the more major characters like McCready, you would have like uh, a little backstory about his wife back in Connecticut. And like there'd be a picture of her in the background and a little bit like, you know, he'd talk to the picture like, it's okay, baby. I'm going to make it. I'll make it back to oh, you. Oh, God. You know? That would make it so like, awful. Yeah, but that's the way Hollywood would generally play it, right? Um, you know, this, this, this is just like in, in Aliens, you know, like I don't like the director's cut because I think right. Cameron added in things that you didn't need and that the original theatrical release is the cleanest, best, most perfect release because they, in the, in the, in the scenes they added back into the director's cut, you have all this backstory with Ripley's daughter. And how, you know, so of course, Newt is a substitute for Ripley's lost daughter and all of that. And I thought, you don't need that. You don't need any of that at all. Uh, and so I, this is what makes the thing, I think, in some way, pure in a sense, is that you don't have any of that emotional nonsense. But I don't want to, I don't want the bullshit. I don't want mm. the deliberate manipulation of my feelings. Like yeah. I, I can feel things on my own. Yeah. And, there's yeah, also and a they scene. are also, Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead, Carolyn. And, and it also adds to their complete isolation. Yes. That there is nobody out there for them. This is it. This is all, you know, this especially is, now that all the Norwegians are dead. So. Yeah, even though some people think they're Swedish, but 
That was pretty. Um, which is almost a running joke. But there's also a, a wonderful moment where one of the act. I'm trying to remember the actor, but one of them mentions how you know when the, when they're they're fighting over whether who should have the gun and who do they trust. And there's one person. He said, "What? Well, why don't you take it? Because no one would object to you." And the the guy was someone that, for sure, they would everyone would be happy with. But he says, "No, I don't think I can take it." Oh, and yeah, that just seems like a responsibility. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, Troy, I think that uh, McCready speech about um, the blood and stuff, I think you can insert that here, but I think that was a wonderful moment in the film where he talks about, I didn't even realize how smart this guy was when he comes up with this idea of burning the blood to see what happens. I know I'm human. And if you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're going to find out who's who. All right, Doc, Gary, and Clark, move over there away from the others. The original film from 51, Dr. Carrington is a bit of an odd person because he says things like there are no enemies in science, only phenomena to be studied. And he gives this thing about a stranger in a strange land. Captain, when you find what you're looking for. Remember, it's a stranger in a strange land. Now, note that that novel came out in 61 and this film came out in 51. The only crimes involved were those committed against it. It awoke from a block of ice, was attacked by dogs, shot by a frightened man. All I want is a chance to communicate with it. And he, at some points, he says, we should all die just so it will live. Um, people didn't go along with that. And the 2011 film did not have as many uh, uh, comments. Um, we just want to thank uh, Carolyn and Sandra for being our special guests for part one. And that's our thing episode, part one. And we'll be back with Carolyn and Sandra for second part. Oh, we're coming back. We're coming back with many more things on the thing. Um, please remember to catch us on your favorite podcast provider. Our website is two numeric two of.ca uh, on Facebook. One of our favorite places to chat with folks. We are two old farts talk sci-fi just, just like we are here. Please tell a friend, like, and subscribe, do all that kind of jazz. I am David Clink. Last time I checked. And I am Troy Harkin. If you can believe me. See you all for our next episode of two old farts. Talk sci-fi.